0: Welcome back to Blamo, a podcast with an exclamation point. My guest this week is Josh Peskowitz. Josh is a stylist, a writer, and co-owner of the concept men's store, magazine. Josh and I spoke about his career in the world of menswear, and now he went from being the fashion director of Bloomingdale's to starting one of the best men's stores in the country. Let's do it. Mr. Josh Peskowitz, thank you so much for coming on. It is my absolute pleasure to wow. be here. I'm sitting here with the true OG menswear Don. <laughs> I mean there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about. Primarily um your time at the Fader. Okay. Um men.style.com. Sure. The greatest videos of all time.
1: Oh man. Okay.
0: No, dude, I'm not gonna butter you up, but I'm gonna call truth out here. Okay. And uh, your style career, and then the fact that you are doing a menswear store in a time where, to be honest, a lot of people aren't doing stores, but your store is like legit and is doing really well. And all my friends in LA are like, oh, dude, you got to go to, I don't know how to pronounce it, but you got to go. I think it's magazine.
1: Everybody says magazine, and I'm okay with that. Like, that was (laughs) semi intentional on my
0: part. All right. So, If you could, what is the name of the store? Magazine. Right. Magazine.
1: Which means store in French.
0: Oh. But,
1: you know, when you look at it, magazine yeah. means magazine in French. So for me, you know, you know, if you wanna like get, you know, third drink pontificating about it, <laughs> you know, my career has been either in stores or in magazines primarily. And um each one's about telling stories. So, you know, the, the fact that people were going to confuse it, I knew that. Right. But for me, that was not an issue. Yeah. So if people come into the store, you know, the only thing is, is like when people come in, they're just like, oh, magazine. And I'm like, yeah, it magazine. And they're just like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> correcting me. I'm like, nah, man, it doesn't matter. But it's funny. <laughs> and, you know, the funniest thing is, is that the most, most Europeans call it magazine mm. when they're talking about it. Which you know, we figured that they would maybe you know any anybody familiar with the romance languages, you think would probably yeah. know, but you know hey whatever, well you can call whatever you want as long as you come by.
0: But and we'll we'll get to more about your store, but it's in L.A. It is in L.A. But you are like one of the most true representations of New York <laughs> well, that I've ever met.
1: I mean, it's I did I was born here. I I, I did live in Washington D.C. for you know. Just, you know, high school. Right. But, uh, but yeah, I, it's funny. Cause like I'm in New York right now and I came for something that we did with Levi's. Um, you know, I got the opportunity to design some jeans for the store and they wanted to do something here in New York for it also, which, you know, I was very happy to, you know, come home and, and, and do something here. <laughs> but they asked me a question. They were like, well, what hotel do you want to stay at? And I said, I don't know. I've never <laughs> stayed in a hotel in New York. I never have. Did you choose a dope hotel? I mean, I'm staying. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty good, you yeah, know. Like, all right. I, I was like thinking like which lobbies I've had like drink meetings in <laughs> that I would like the lobby, you know. And then, it's a good way to gauge it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know,
1: if the lobby's alright, then the rooms Yeah, can't be too terrible. Yeah. But yeah, so um I am in LA. I live in LA
0: now. Yeah. You How's know? how are you dealing with uh I mean cuz you know, you you're always been a traveling man, but yeah yeah what do you, what's how's la way well it's, I'm, I'll be
1: honest it's a very nice place to come home to right you know that killer um, weather well that and you know just like there's quiet, there's space there's beautiful natural light like the light in l a is really gorgeous I mean the light in l a is, is you know and like all of the you know sort of southwest over there wherever you go I mean I was in Joshua tree a couple of weeks ago, right and um you know the light is just phenomenal that's why so many of us in this industry always go out there to shoot yeah you know photo shoots um for magazines and advertising campaigns all of that because you know you get like phenomenal outdoor light for like four hours right which you don't get in new york and uh you know like it's comparable to like the light in paris you know which is like you know top top light (laughs) that's the top light in, in in my experience but you know la's a pretty close second so like that's nice and and you know getting home from the airport is like easy as opposed to this clusterfuck that is new york city like yeah so um you know that that's that um do i miss being here um yes do i miss my friends and you know the family and all of that uh sure but you know um life has taken me to LA for now and, and, and it's, it's, it's good there. It's good there.
0: Yeah. So before LA, like you were saying, you were here, how earlier you had mentioned that you, you went to high school in DC. Mm -hmm. So how, I mean, how much time did you spend in, in New York?
1: I I was born in Brooklyn uh, and my family moved, you know, before I started elementary school and I spent most of my, my time in New York that I wasn't, you know, like my family, my grandparents, both sets of my grandparents um you know most of my cousins and and everybody were still here a lot of them have gradually moved down there right. over time um the ones who you know are still with us and um you know my brother and I both lived here um for many years um but my brother lives in DC now too um he moved a few years ago when he was getting ready to have my niece Oh, nice not him but you know his, sure my 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 sister in law <laughs> um but yeah i mean i moved back here You know, like, I I basically, by the time I, was like, started high school, I was like, Mom, I don't want to go to New York anymore. Like, all my friends are here, you know. (laughs) Um, So, you know, but we spent a lot of time here when I was a kid um, in Brooklyn. That's that's where I'm from. Where in Uh, Brooklyn? I'm from an area um, of Midwood that they call the Flatlands. Oh. So, um, out by Nostrand Avenue. Yeah. And um, my parents um, did not know each other growing up, but they grew up 10 blocks away from each other.
0: That's dope. Yeah. They're both from here too. They're both from Brooklyn, yeah. Right.
1: And um, they they met later in life um, when uh, one of my mother's friends was moving into the house next door to my father's parents' house. Okay. And so, like, they met, you know, because, like... She was coming in and out of the house, and my pops was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'll hold the door for well, you. Yeah, who's, who's that?
0: <laughs>
1: um, and that's how they met, you know? And then, right. and then, um, you know, and then they found out that one of them grew up on Avenue P, and the other one grew up on Avenue L, and, you know. It's stuff. like when Harry met Sally, stuff. I mean, I don't think it was quite as prolonged and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> agonized as all that. I think it was pretty quick out the box, you know? Nice. Al saw what he liked, and he made the moves. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, I, um, I, I definitely identify both as a New Yorker and as a, you know, d- you know DMV person. Um, right. But, I, you know, my career has been here. Yeah. And I moved here, you know, shortly after September 11th um, when I graduated from college. Um, Where did you go to school? I went to the University of Delaware. Um, and most of my very close friends that I made there, who are, many of whom are still my very close friends, um, are all New Yorkers. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot... And, you know, there's been, over the years, like, some people that I was friends with in elementary school and high school have moved to New York, and they've become friends with my New York friends, and, you know, so it's like, it's yeah. this whole big thing. So, it's a small world. Right. So, you know, my... my, You know, I, I definitely have I always identified as, you know, at least, like, as a New York person.
0: Yeah. You know? And you were... I mean, apparently you were a music guy, right? Because you worked at the fader with our mutual friend uh mr will welch right
1: i did will and i started there um i started there a little bit before will right um, a few months before will did and yeah i mean i got that job it was i was always into music i was always into magazines and um you know When I when I first saw the Fader, which was when I was in college, you know, I think I saw the second issue, and I was like, "What's this?" You know, and I was I was lucky enough to sort of fall into the orbit of people who were involved in that magazine when I first came um, back to New York after college, right? Um, And you know, I was couch surfing. You know how it is, like when you first. Yeah, I was 21 years old and, 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 you know, like just sort of looking for a job. And I, and I found one, um, working at Urban Outfitters Dope. and I was, um, I was actually just like walking down the street and I saw this woman, um, her name was Rachel White and she was a manager of a store in Washington that I worked at called Up Against the Wall, which is, you know, in the annals of like sort of streetwear. It was like a very important store. Okay. Um, and I started working there when I was in high school because, you know, I wanted some polo sports sweatpants and them joints were like $125. <laughs> and I <was> like, no. <laughs> like not happening unless I get the discount. So <laughs> and I knew her from there. And, and you, know, she, um, you know, she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a job. And she said, well, I have a job here as a, you know, men's merchandising person and window display person. At the at the Urban Outfitters that used to be on Waverly Place, which is yeah uh, now now closed, but um, you know that was the first one in the city, and she was just like, "Do you want the job?" And I was like, "Yeah, you know, I filled out like a W two. I don't even think I filled out an application." You know, <laughs> she just gave me the job because we had worked together before, and she knew, you know, that I had a strong work ethic and that I would show up when I said I would, and I would you know yeah. leave later than I said I was going to, right? <laughs> and you know all of that. Um, but I one of my really good friends was working as an intern in the photo department at the fader and you know they they were looking for some help in 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 the fashion part of it and my name came up and you know basically it was just like oh he knows how to be a stylist and, I, and my friend was like yeah <laughs> and he calls me up he's like they're about to call you and see if you can be a stylist and i'm like i don't know how to do that shit, he's like you put clothes on mannequins motherfucker you can do it and I was like, okay <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, that that, I I met those people. I met, um, you know, there's there's many people who I worked with at The Fader who are still, you know, who have gone on to do really, really great things, you know. And it's just, I look back on that and I feel really lucky
0: to have been part of that, you know, cultural moment. Right. I mean, because when you were at The Fader, it was also, I mean, it was probably one of the most influential in terms of like underground tastemaker magazines of you know, like the Fader had what was actually cool. Rolling Stone had what was mainstream cool, but the Fader had, I mean, it was like pitchfork before pitchfork.
1: There was, well, the internet was not the internet yet when when I started working at, at the Fader. And, you know, it was one of those things, like one of the things that appealed to me about reading those kinds of magazines, you know, whether it was The Face or The Fader or even, you know, like Nylon back then, you know. Right. Reading a magazine like that gave you a window into something that other people didn't know about yet. Um, and there was something extremely appealing to me because I've always been a very curious person. I've always wanted to know more. Um, and, you know, knowing, you know, just being up on things was, was important to me. And so, you know, getting a chance to work there, it was, it was really special, you know? And, And at that time, you know, you, there was still this sense of discovery and there was still this sort of like you know, secret, you know, cause the magazine had a circulation of like 90,000 at that time. And I don't know what it is anymore, but you know, that's infinitesimal compared to other things. Cause print was still number one back yeah. then. But the people who read the fader were people who told other people what was up. Yeah. And so, you know, we got the opportunity to know about a lot of things before they jumped off. And, you know, I got to see, crazy bands you know and like just do really interesting stuff you know we like i mean one of the ones that we always say you know we put kanye west on the fader went before the through the wire video came out or like yep. right after the through the wire video came out and we did a party with him and like we, oh my god we did this party with him and uh, a group that was on Vice Records called The
0: Stills, because we did the, uh, flip the Stills covers. are one of my favorite bands ever, so, and I was listening to them before I got here. That's, that's so funny, really. Yeah, that's
1: dope. So, but then we did this party with them, and like somehow the the art director at the time was this guy named Eddie Brennan, um, and that was before Phil Bicker, who who came on and and about halfway through my time there. Um, and Eddie Brennan and I somehow convinced the people who worked for Diane von Furstenberg to let us throw this party in her house. <laughs> <laughs> and the house was, this was before she built the big store on 14th Street. She had right. another one. It was on like Little West 12th or 12th Street or something like right over there. And She had this house and it was like her, where she did her runway shows was on the first floor and the second floor was her archives. The third floor was a damn was offices, fourth okay. floor was her apartment, you know, like that kind of thing. And she was out of town. And they got us to throw this party up. We, you know, we convinced them to do it. And it was like, you know, we were going to do this feature on, on von Furstenberg, who was no question an iconic person. Um, but, you know, at the time she was like, I don't know what this magazine is and I don't know who these people are, but like for some reason she agreed to it. Okay. The party was, it was, it was a, it was a bumping party. But I like, <laughs> I, I told them, I was just like, look, you know, after they signed the paperwork, I'm like, look, some shit's gonna get fucked up in here. <laughs> like, I was gonna warn you right now. You know, the green room had like black Moon in it. I mean, it was just ridiculous. But it was a lot of fun. But, you know, those are the kind of things that, that the Fader did. You know, there weren't, there really weren't that many other en- entities that could pull like such disparate groups of people together the way yeah. the Fader did. And it was really special. It yeah. still is. It's still a special magazine. And I still read it and, you know, run into people who work there or. You know many of the people who I worked with there over the years, who um, you know have gone on to do really influential, cool stuff in their in their careers post Fader. But you know, it's definitely it's a bond. You know, it's a common yeah. bond between people who were there at that time for sure. Well, for sure.
0: you were one of those guys who went on to do bit bigger things, and you know, you get to and we don't have to go through every detail, but you get to men dot style dot com or yeah. style dot com, and that was when you were working with. uh Tyler Brulé Tyler Thorson Tyler Thorson excuse me man Tyler Brulé monocle whatever dude um (laughs) also a very nice man I've
1: met Tyler many times he's a very nice man
0: (laughs) but excuse me so you're with Tyler Thorson and this is when I kind of found out more of who you were uh because you guys were doing I'm sure you were doing a ton of other things but where I at least like I felt that I got to know more about who you were was through these videos and they were called... In the Closet. That's, and yes. holy shit.
1: Yeah, that name was not my decision.
0: It, uh, well, the name was irrelevant to the fact that when... One, like three big things that I just want to point out. One, you guys were doing video stuff before everyone else was doing videos. Because now if you're a brand, if you're whatever, you got to have a video. Mm-hmm. You have to have some type of visual you know, media to go along with what you're doing. Um, You guys were doing these sort of style tip education guides, Mm -hmm. which were awesome. And you guys were normal, like, cool dudes. Like, it was very easy to watch the videos and be like, okay, like, I'm not there yet, but, like, these guys seem, like, far enough out of my reach that it's maybe down the road it's attainable. Versus you watch a video of, like, you know, Carl Lagerfeld or whatever. You're like, I could never be that guy. Like, whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, they hired me at men.style Style um you know, it was after I had done I'd worked with Nick Sullivan and and you know, they had hired me to work on the first edition of the Big Black Book and I and I did that with them and I think that you know, Tyler sort of like saw some of like, you know, the instructive things that we were able to do there and I mean, I learned a ton from Nick, you know, about tailored clothing and all those things when we worked together. Mhm. Um 'Cause you know, I really came from sort of a you know, like a street culture background, you know. Sure. You know, but Esquire was really a big part of my education when it came to like the true menswear, tailored clothing, like those kinds of things working there was was big for me. And I think that, you know, men dot style was a hybrid of the two. Like, you know, the tailored stuff was important, but you know, the fashion industry with the capital F was also a huge part of what we did and what we covered. Um, so you know, when they came to me with the idea, and it was Tyler, um, who was the executive editor, and then our editor-in-chief was named Dirk Standen, um, his, his, his name is still Dirk Standen, um, <laughs> you know, just, just for the record. But uh, we, we, you know, they, they were both like really tall, <laughs> you know, like yeah. really good-looking Tyler's guys. like some Norse god. Tyler's like 6'11". <laughs> can't dunk, though. Uh, oh <laughs> no! I'm kidding. Okay, Tyler's like six five. I don't know if he can dunk or not. I've never, 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 never hooped to them. Never, never challenged them. Um, and you know, Dirk was like six three and a you know, former rugby player. Right. You know, he's from England and he still works for Condé Nast. He works at, um, I think he heads up uh, twenty three stories, which is their sort of like creative services. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they pu- they pulled me into Dirk's office and they were like, "We got this idea," and we're like okay, what's up? And said, we want to do this video series. I was like, oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then they were like, we want it to be you and Tyler sitting in the fashion closet talking about fashion. I was like, I see where this is going. <laughs> and they're like, and we want to call it in the closet. I was like, thanks, guys. I really appreciate the <laughs> offer, but I'm <laughs> not interested at all in doing this. And they were like, no, we think it'll be good, you know, video, it'll be compelling. Yeah. You guys are going to love it. Um, it'll be fun. You guys have such a good dynamic, you know, when you're bantering in the editorial meetings. And All true.
0: Stuff. All true. And I
1: said, you know, look, guys, I really appreciate you having the confidence in me to do this. But like, I'm a behind the scenes kind of guy. I am not in front of the camera material. I'll tell you that right now. And they were just like, no, you're going to do
0: this. <laughs> Actually, no, this is more of a requirement. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and
1: reframe <laughs> this conversation. Yeah, you're doing this or you're not working here anymore. They didn't say that. But and, you know, my thing was, I, this, is, this, is, this is God's honest truth. I said to Tyler and Derek, I said, look, if you guys are really going to make me do this, I got to have a drink before I go on camera. Uh-huh. like, just to steady my nerves. And Tyler was like, well, why don't we just drink on camera? And yep. that's where that sort of part of it came from. Like, that idea of us, you know, drinking a different spirit, um, you know, tasting it, talking about it. And, and I think that that lent it. You know, after, after everything was said and done, I think that lent it,
0: like, more of a relatability sure. to a lot of people. Well, so, because there was a few brands that I discovered from, so, CP Company, mm-hmm. which I hadn't heard of, really. I learned about from that. Needles. Because mm-hmm. I remember you had come back from Pity, I think. Mm-hmm. And you were like, yeah, there's this great brand called Needles. And I remember watching it and taking notes. It's, it's like I couldn't even. Come on, you were taking notes? I'm a dude, I'm a, I'm a loser. (laughs) I was like, you know, because of course, you know, with a video, God knows you can't ever start it over. (laughs) Yeah, no. I was just like, I was like, Oh, I was like, what's needles number. I mean, so I was trying to study everything that was happening at that time, which is of course, you know, why I pretty much stayed in a tiny wormhole while you guys were doing cool stuff. And those videos were awesome. And it's funny because that, whether people realize it or not, and I'll say it too on this podcast, is that had a snowball effect across Condonast because then GQ's doing, you know, their style rules and In the Closet, and, or I don't, I don't know if it was called In the Closet, but that was like shortly after GQ did their sort of famous men's rules. Um, right. They did do the men's rules. I remember that. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of that was also like the success of In the Closet propelled and opened up this whole new world of, you know, informative men's videos. Cause this is also right at the time where it was okay. I can't believe it even, I'm even saying this, but like it was okay for men to like care about what they wanted to look like.
1: You know, it's funny because, and, and that's, that's absolutely true. But you know, the culture that I grew up in, you know, based on, you know, living, living in Washington and living in, you know, New York, um, When I was younger, you know, the clothes that you wore really mattered a lot. Sure. You know, like the sneakers that you wore mattered a lot. You know, the type of jeans you wore mattered a lot. Like these things that were, I mean, I don't know if it was like being in a, you know, relatively urban environment. But you know where I went to high school like if you showed up in busted sneakers like you were going to get clowned on and if you showed up <laughs> in like too nice of a pair of sneakers they might get taken you know what I mean so it's just like but but you know like those kinds of things were really really important and so you know I always cared right because I thought that you know the clothes that you wore said something about you you yeah. know and it was just like what do you want to project to the world and that is part of just the human experience you know like animals have their feathers or their dances or you know their fur coats or whatever you know but like those are signifiers of like where they stand in the order of things
0: yeah attention defense mating. attention defense <laughs> mating you <laughs> yeah. know those
1: are you know those are those are pretty core life functions true you know? and humans have clothes yeah and tattoos and piercings and hair color and all that kind of shit but you know like Clothing is important. Like, if you look at the history of the world, the clothing that you wore was who you identified with. Yeah. And um, that's important. hmm And I think that, you know, up until probably, like, the Reagan era, men cared very much about the clothing that they were wearing. Yes. You know, and it was about showing who you were. You know, people talk about Bo Brummel and all that stuff. Fine. You know, they, all, that's, all that's true.
0: Bo who who is, like, the very first dandy. If yeah. you don't know who he is, Google him. Right. But, like, he's also, like, the first person who wore, like, actual pants,
1: you know, instead <laughs> yeah. of, like, breeches. So, you yeah, know, like, you know, so take that as you will. You can call him a dandy. You can just call him, like, clothed, you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, th- so th- this is, this is important stuff. But I think that there is, there was a time in, you know, general men's culture that, you know, caring too much about what you're wearing wasn't cool. Yeah, and that sort of start the internet really broke that down yes that broke that down and it because it became something that like you could find out about without having to ask somebody else about it you could go on to ask andy about clothes and you know like yeah. anonymously ask a question you know those were the forums at the time and then you know like all the content started to like from the magazines and and all of that starts to creep online and you could find out about things without having to like ask your friends and then appear to like not know something, yeah. which is like, you know, fucking kryptonite to men, you know, <laughs> 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 to act like they don't already know something. yeah. And so, um, yeah, you know, and I think that a lot of, you know, cause when I started working in this business, there were not very many people like me that were doing this. Yes. Um, meaning, you know, relatively middle-class heterosexual men that's very very true you know and like I'm from a blue collar background and you know my family obviously in you know tolerated my interest in clothing and my brother you know loved sneakers and you know my dad would have like the odd polo teddy bear sweater that he would get at the outlet and he <laughs> and my brother would steal from him but you know like the the it wasn't like a big topic of conversation in the house yeah um but you know the, the the those things are those things are uh, became much more comfortable for men to talk about, and I, and I do now looking back on it recognize that you know Tyler and I doing those videos, which is a testament to Tyler and to Dirk, not to me. Oh, come on, you did cool stuff. Well, you were you were on there. I mean, I was on there, but you know, I'm just I, yo, I'm shooting from the hip. Like it
0: wasn't <laughs> my idea. You that's know? well, that's what made it good. Because, you know, Tyler was great too. I'm, I'm nothing against Tyler, but um, both of you guys like it was banter. It was the fact that like, oh, like these are just normal guys. Like my friends and I are normal guys too, and we're talking about this. And I think, like that, you know, like like again, like I was saying, that really made it attainable. Because I think there was. Do you remember the bag? Because I'm gonna uh, on the show notes. I'm gonna put a, like a YouTube playlist of all these videos because oh, I good found them. God. Okay. <laughs> Um, but there Assuming was See me when I was like young and thin and like handsome. Oh, come on, man. You still got it. There was a, there was a bag that had a garment bag that wrapped around the Yo,
1: people still tweet at me about that joint. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Cause like that never went into production. Uh Oh, because I was like, so what is that bag? <laughs> I remember it was an MCM bag, like before like the, the oh, resurgence of MCM. Damn. Yes, yeah, so it was MCM. But I saw that thing and I was like, this is the best fucking idea ever. Yeah. And they never made it. And then when I was working at Bloomingdale's, MCM was a very big, you know, vendor for them. Yeah. Um, both in men's and women's. And like every meeting... That I would go into. I'm just like, y'all are playing yourselves if you don't make that garment bag combo. Yeah. And they never did. Maybe i have to make it now. Yeah,
0: yeah I was going to say. Maybe, maybe uh
1: magazine. MCM, if you're listening, don't make that
0: bag. <laughs> yeah. They're, maybe they are, probably not. I doubt him. Uh, it's just like there's a lot of like
1: there's a lot of <laughs> anecdotal evidence that it'll do well. we'll probably saw like five of them, like all the people that tweeted over at me about it over the last decade. <laughs> well,
0: I actually just got a, this <laughs> and this bag and this, and you're like, all right, buddy. <laughs> so from men.style, you then moved on to a bunch of different roles, right? But I mean yeah. the big thing is you you stayed this sort of menswear personality. Cause then this is right around the time that uh sartorialist and tommy Tan and those guys are taking photos and then you're like the dude
1: it may have seemed that way from the outside but to me i was just keeping my head down and working you know i there was it's interesting how that whole thing evolved you know and continues to yeah but you know we i think that i think that you know going back to the videos i think that that was the first time that like people ever saw my face and it was, you know, like prior to that, like I cared about magazines and I knew stylist names and I knew bylines, you know, but you didn't know what anybody looked like, you know, because everybody was behind the scenes and there wasn't this culture of like, you know, like once you got into the industry, you know, and you were like futzing around at different events and this, that, and the other thing like you got to see who these people were and you started to put faces to names, like, you know i I worked for Bruce Pask, uh, at cargo before working at Esquire, and you know I knew his byline, but mm-hmm. I had no idea what he looked like or anything until I met him. you know that's just an example you know Nick Sullivan, whatever you know these people who have really really helped me to sort of figure out the business and figure out like what what my place in it and you know how to work and like what I needed to know and what I didn't already know and which was everything but you know you didn't know what those people looked like, and then with with Scott, with Tommy, you know, these names had faces and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the video, as you said, you know, the videos that I did with Tyler, you know, gave sort of a relatable aspect to all the stuff that we were talking about. And it made, you know, and I've heard from people over the years that, you know, seeing those videos, whether they were in you know college or high school or whatever um you know help them to decide that this was a business that they wanted to get into themselves yeah um, which is really gratifying it, it really is um but you know the street style thing and you know tommy and scott taking those pictures like that also because like you know we're normal people you know we're not models we're not actors We're just normal people who are wearing things that, like, are maybe outside of the comfort zone of, like, most people until they see somebody that they can
0: relate to wearing something like that. Yeah. And also, you guys were dressing yourself. Right. We were dressing ourselves. this is also right at the time, too, where, you know, stylists are also personalities. So, like, you know, not that you guys had anything to do with, like, Brad Gresky or Rachel Zoe or that, but, like, people were starting to assume, at least... Like other people that I had talked to, if you saw a picture of somebody in a magazine, it was because somebody told them that they had to look like that and someone dressed them. There wasn't really authenticity or natural sort of style. And, you know, right as the P.T. Wilmo photos start, you know, and you're in there and, you know, Nick Wooster and stuff like that, people are like, oh, that's just like what they're doing. Like, that's just like their regular style. And, like, that's like them going to work. And I think. And it was. That was was.
1: us going to work. I mean, you know, you turned it up a little bit for pity, but, you know, like it wasn't, (laughs) but it wasn't, I mean, you know, it's not like I wasn't wearing, it's not like I don't wear those clothes on the regular. Yeah. You know, and I know that, I know the same is very much true for Nick. Yeah. I mean, I've never met anybody, you know, who just is so. So f- willing to experiment with his own like look and self image as Nick is, and it's just it's it's fabulous you know? it really is <laughs> it's just you know he's an he's an inspiration to us all yeah, he really is for sure, I agree yeah. so
0: you eat men.style style and you're at- yeah
1: well, men.style style ended up you know because of conde Nast's internal sort of decision making processes, they ended up taking the content that was the men's half of style.com, which was men.style.com. We had one reporting structure, you know, Dirk was the editor of both style and men.style. Right. And, you know, they ended up taking that men's content and sort of folding it into GQ.com, which became a much more robust presence. Um, And, you know, at that point I didn't, you know, like my services were redundant, you know? So, um, I ended up, you know, losing my job,
0: hmm.
1: which, you know, Happens, which has happened quite a few times to me over my career. A lot of people always said to me, like, oh, you did all these different things. I'm like, yeah, because I got fired a lot. <laughs> <laughs> never, oh, ne- man. never performance based. I'll say that. For you sure. Know? But, you know, times change. And, you know, the, pu- am- the publishing industry and the media landscape has shifted significantly over the course of my career. Yeah. And um, I spent, I spent uh, the better part of a year, maybe not that long. I don't really remember how long but I ended up spending quite a bit of time writing for other people, you know, freelance New York times, uh, GQ style, but like the European editions cause they didn't have a GQ style in the United States yet. Right. Um, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, I still, I was like most bummed cause I'd really started to get used to going to the shows in Europe and I, you know, and I'd been covering them in style and writing reviews and, you know, traveling with Tim Blanks, who's you know a dear friend of mine, and and certainly someone who I learned just you know more than I can
0: tell. Tim you Blanks, know. who's like the original fashion men's fashion reviewer, and yeah, I mean Tim Blanks, he's is, an OG. Tim Blanks is you know like he, he'd probably tell me to shut
1: up if you heard me say this, <laughs> but you know he's he's definitely one of the I mean you know most important working fashion critics. You know, Yes. Yeah. And, you know, traveling with him and, and, you know, learning the craft, you know, alongside watching him do it is, was huge. I mean, now he's at Business of Fashion. That's what he does now. He does, yeah. he does video interviews and, and runway um, um, reviews for them. But, you know, after that, I, I ended up being given the opportunity to go back to the shows and not miss a season um, by uh, Stephen Gann at V Magazine. Oh, okay. I remember um, that. And V Man. Um, So he said to me, he said, look, if you want to go, I'll send you, you know, and you'll have to write like a daily journal and, you know, contribute, you know, be like a contributing editor to a couple of issues of the magazine. And I you know, jumped at the chance, of course, to continue my time at the shows in Europe. And um, so, you know, I did that. And then I I ended up going back to Esquire. Um, Esquire was planning on launching a more robust web presence mm-hmm. um i had contributed to the first issue of the big black book and you know they asked me to you know write some write some pieces for that work on some of the photo shoots for that but primarily do the web so i, I launched the style blog for them and so i did that for um uh, you know a period of time a little over i'm gonna say like between a year and a year and a half i don't remember exactly how long and we had success with that. You know, that was, yeah, when, it was huge. Yeah, that was when David Granger was still the um editor and and you know Nick was there and um um Rich Dormant, who's now uh, at Wired, I believe. I think he's a senior editor at Wired now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that was the team and, and Wendell Brown and and Nick Screws, you know, that was the team over there, and we had great fun and we had a lot of fun doing that magazine and and doing that website, and it was really good and and i probably would have stayed there much longer if tyler thorson hadn't called me and said remember that idea we were kicking around about doing you know like an editorially based thing where there didn't need to be any advertisements i said yeah i remember that He was just like well i'm gonna do it at guilt oh yeah snap i remember this and he and he said you know would you be interested in working on something like this? And this was pre-Mr. Porter, you know, none of that stuff had come out yet. And I said, yeah, I'd be really interested in working on something like that. So I went over there and I worked with Tyler and, you know, we and and some other really great people. Um, Nick Booster obviously came on board a little later um, after he left Neiman's. And um, Lawrence, I remember. Lawrence was there. Uh, Jared Flint, dear friend, Jared Flint, who now lives in um, Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, uh, Chris Wallace is now an interview, um, just a ton of people, you know, that, that were assembled to sort of bring this thing that eventually became uh, Park and bond to life. That's right. And, you know, obviously Tyler was like, and you know, we're doing some videos and like, fuck. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. Because you I'm guys like break did, out those bottles again, man. You guys got, did kind of relaunch <laughs> in the closet.
1: We did, although we did it in the photo studio. That time there was yeah, um, but yeah, we did that and, and we launched Park and Bond, and, and that was a really terrific experience for me in terms of like learning because we built something from the ground up. You know? Yeah, I mean, Park and Bond
0: was phenomenal. It was excellent.
1: It was not long for this world, but it yeah. was a it was a wonderful exercise in brand building and, um, learning just, I I can't even begin to go into what I learned during that process, but all of those experiences, you know, one of the things, although many of the moves that I've made over the years have not been deliberate at the time, I have conscientiously tried to do things that I didn't know how to do. Okay. In the sense that, you know, when I left the fader, I went, I, you know, by the time I left the fader, like, I, you know, like I gave them like, a, you know, three months notice and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. I love you guys. Um, But, you know, I took, I took a job at, I worked at Stuff Magazine for three months.
0: Oh, damn. I and remember the, Stuff.
1: And it didn't really work out that well. Yeah. And, you know, just like, there's a lot of reasons why, but you know, I really wasn't prepared for, you know, I wasn't prepared to, I didn't learn how to like. Take what I was saying, and sort of trans you know, like transmit it to an, an audience of 1.5 who were more interested, 1.5 million who were more interested in like Ferraris and girls in bikinis than they were like in Vizvim and you know, <laughs> underground Japanese peat rock mixtapes, you know, Yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. So you know, that, that, that just wasn't working. Right. And I got offered a job at Cargo. I'm working for Bruce Pask. And, you know, when I went to go work for Bruce, like I'd never worked for a huge corporation like Condi NAS before. And I didn't know how, like, a big, well oiled, you know, magazine team worked. I don't know what the fuck I was doing. (laughs) I mean, but you did it. I did it. And, you know, Bruce really helped me learn, like, how to be a market editor. Yeah you know, like how to know what's in the market, how to manage your time, um, you know, get it done. Cause cargo was a huge undertaking. I mean, it was like 150 pages of ca- fashion content. Issue. Yeah. Cargo was, was great mag. It was, it was really, it was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, um, you know, but that was a lot of work and, and I didn't know the market well enough and I learned it. And then, you know, I went to go work for Nick on big black book and I'd really learned about tailored clothing. And I learned a lot about styling menswear and how things should fit and, and honestly i learned a lot about like just clothes you know because like there was all these things that these italian brands made that i was just like wait a minute that shit just looks like like an army jacket that's pretty tight like what is that <laughs> and it's just like oh well that's this that. you know so it's like you start to realize like what parts of this sort of apply to you yeah and that's really important you know it's really important to learn um and then you know obviously my time at style.com we don't need, men.style, we don't need to talk about that anymore but I learned a lot there. And then, you know, launching this website, I learned a lot there. And, you know, when that sort of seemed like it wasn't the best fit for me anymore, which was before it ended up closing down. But, you know, I, I, I didn't I didn't you know the direction that it was going and felt, you know, not really what I had sort of set out to do. Right. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I ended up being offered a job at Bloomingdale's and I said, well, this is an opportunity to really learn the business, yeah. you know? And so I worked for Kevin Harder at Bloomingdale's for almost five years and, uh, as the men's fashion director and, you know, Kevin is just a wonderful person. And, you know, I, I say, I say this to anybody who will listen, he's the best boss I ever had. And, um. You know, I learned an absolute another skill set there. You know, um, really, the things that allowed me to launch magazine.
0: Yeah, because I was going to say it's it's interesting now, especially hearing from you. Every single role that you had, each part, each role was kind of building this sort of Swiss Army knife of of retail business editing fashion experience that yeah that at the end allows you to basically be the king of your own castle and yeah, i mean it's about be, being a generalist you know it's not cool, like knowing the market and i think i don't know if it was you that said this or maybe someone else i had talked to but the difference of you know like dressing yourself and being an editor but also knowing what maybe it was like when i was at the armory and you would come by once but also knowing like what your clients wanted and would buy.
1: We did talk about that one time at the armory. Cause yeah. that's the thing. It's just, you know, there it, you need to take yourself out of it sometimes.
0: Yeah. And, and I don't know if people know that that you, that you have to do that.
1: Well, I mean, it, 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 also depends, you know, like if you are doing something like what I'm doing at magazine now, you know, like that is very personal to me. Yeah. You know, like the things that we sell in the store are things that I, Myself and my business partner, uh, Simon and Christoph, like that, that we feel strongly about. And there is something that's very personal about personal about that. And, you know, these days, most of the shopping that I do is either in my own store, or, you know, when I'm on a trip, you know, primarily in, in, in Tokyo. Um, But when you, when you're working for something as big and as broad, that means as many things to as many people for as many hundreds of years as Bloomingdale's, you know. The shit ain't about you. Right. You know, it's about, and one of the conversations I remember having, you know, it's just like, Josh, when you were an editor, you know, you could be two years ahead of the curve. Yeah. You can talk about whatever you want. You get a new issue next next month or, you know, once it was the internet, next hour you know, or next millisecond, really. You know, you can just start over and there's no investment in that. So you can be two years ahead. No problem. You can say I was first. But here you need to be on time. You know
0: That's a, yeah.
1: Like you can't be two years ahead. You need to be like six months ahead. Right. Be six months ahead. (laughs) We can make money off six months ahead. That's true. Two years ahead, we're losing a lot of money. Don't do that. (laughs) That's a lesson that you learn. Yeah. And, um, you know, it isn't about you and it isn't about what you like. It is about what you like, but it's also about what will the customer like? What will the customer understand? How are you serving him? hmm And that is, you know, I mean, it's this is this is not a vanity project. This is business. Yeah. And so, you know, if you you need to provide something to the community that they don't already have. And that's what we've tried to do at Magazine. Now we've entered an age in the world where people small small footprints can have big voices. Yeah. Because of the web and everything else. Um, so, you know, you can do something in a place like Culver City in Los Angeles, and it can mean something in New York or San Francisco or, you know, London or whatever, um, because the reach is farther. And we have the luxury of not needing to appeal
0: to everyone, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, I think the stuff that you guys have is definitely, I mean, it, it is your vibe, um, but it's has There's got no the... question
1: that it's my vibe. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, if it wasn't, that shit would be really weird. <laughs>
0: But it, it's got, like, a cool sort of also laid-back type of, like, California-like feel and experience. I mean, you got, you know, Sig Denim stuff there. I mean, the, the Levi stuff that you were doing. You got some EG. You were doing uh, doing some pop-up stuff with uh, with Stofa. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, yeah, it's great. And the, the unfortunately, I haven't been there yet, but all the photos that I've seen of it, the design's pretty epic. It, it's not like your standard, especially coming from where you're at, at Bloomingdale's. It's not more or less your standard store layout.
1: It's definitely not standard. And, you know, we, well, you know, it's, it's also, it's just like, what are you opening a store for? You know, like what, what, and this is a question that I ask myself, you know, um, I've, yes, there's the fact that I've always wanted my own store, you know, since I started working in one when I was 16, but also just what are you, what are you adding to the conversation? And that was important to me, you know, because I needed to be able to serve my clients, whomever they ended up being. That's certainly the most important thing to me. But the second most important thing to me is what are we making a stand for within the industry and within the community of people that we admire and work with and, you know, know. And, you know, I really wanted to stand for integrity when we built the store and I wanted to stand for integrity in manufacturing process. I wanted to stand for integrity in, you know, the brands that we sold, um, in the pricing of the items in the store. Right. You know, and I wanted to stand for integrity in like saying that these were things that we would sell, even if they were a little bit weird or a little bit funky, you know, they were made in a way by people who cared in places where people are paid, you know, like decent wages to live. Yeah you know, they're not dumping iodine into the drinking water and, you know, like those kinds of things. I mean, most of the clothes in my store are made in the USA, Italy, or Japan. And those are places that have pretty stringent, you know, environmental codes and and labor practices. And so those are, it's not the reason that the store is there, but it's important to who we are. Yeah. And, um, you know, the clothing that we sell is primarily from brands that are not as readily available if you are really into this stuff, you will know most of them, Mm -hmm. but you know, they are not widely distributed brands. Um, and so, you know, and I think that most of the things that we have in the store, not all, but most of the things we have in the store are priced according to sort of like parts and labor. Yeah. Like like what, what's it made out of and how hard was it to make it? And that's why it costs what it costs and how long is it going to last as opposed to, you know, being, priced because of status or being priced because of you know like big fashion house
0: brands per se i'm just i mean we're not calling anyone out but i No,
1: but i mean you know there are times when things there there are times when things are are placed are priced at a premium because of the status of them
0: yeah like Dior jeans are great but they don't need to be seven hundred dollars
1: I've never owned a pair of Dior jeans because they don't fit over my calves, but I would imagine
0: that um, they don't necessarily need to cost quite as much as they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind. I'll say it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy expensive because it's Dior, you know, and I think like it's, it's good that, you know, your store has, has become that too, because I think it also is a true reflection more of what consumers are now. I mean, um, I've said this, I don't know, I've probably said on other pods before, but like my wife shops at Everlane. And she loves Everlane Women's. Everlane Men's is another story. But Everlane Women's she loves because they're sort of transparency type, you know, how they communicate. It's a very good communications program. Yeah. I mean, it's airtight. Now, I mean, and they're also manufacturing in factories in China and stuff like that in which, you know, in what you were saying, you're doing, you know, Italy, Japan, U.S., but you're speaking to a customer who is informed, knowledgeable, and like, yeah, when you're asking yourself, what are you offering? It's like, yeah, I mean, you're a retail store of what, to me, what a lot of retail stores need to be now. Like, if you want to survive, you have to be conscious of the fact that your customers aren't idiots, that your customers know about pricing, that they they care, they want to make sure that they're buying something, but it's going, you know, they're not just lining the pockets of somebody at saint laurent or something you know um, so it's just
1: well i mean at this point you know when you look at the way a lot of stores uh have you know the way that the market forces and consumer behavior and their own decisions have you know sort of shaped them yeah many stores uh first of all there's too many of them (laughs) you know and and i mean that i mean that truly you know um There are plenty of, you know, specialty retailers, as they're called. Sure. That, you know, there are as many of them as there are Starbucks.
0: That's true. There is
1: a lot of boutique, sort of. Well, you know, boutique. But, like, I'm talking about, like, big commercial brands. But they have little stores. And, you know, they've got so many of them that, you know, they start to step on each other's toes. And, you know, then there's the big department stores, which, you know, were so good for so long because they were generalists yeah you know have sort of all started to carry the same things and they're competing against their own suppliers in the same retail places so you know if you're a customer why would you go to a mall you know why would you do any of that stuff you can because if you already know what you want from those brands just order from them and be done with it you know but order online order online yeah you know um but you know there is still something to be said and i don't want to be a broken record i mean everybody who's listening to this has probably read you know more articles than they can stomach about you know like creating an experience
0: you'd be surprised but i mean oh
1: i don't know who listens to this shit that's on you but (laughs) You've got the <laughs> metrics on that, pal. I ain't got nothing to do no, with no, that. No, no, no.
0: I'm just saying that, like, I think people are always interested, especially in people like you's opinion and philosophy. Well, so. I think that,
1: you know, there's just, there is, like I was saying earlier, you know, the, the the confluence of things that have made a lot of other bigger entities all feel the same and sort of, you know, redundant Yeah, has also made it so that, Small people or small businesses with a very distinct point of view have an, can have an outsized voice yeah. um, using the same communication techniques. So, you know, for me, I'm doing this little store. We don't sell online. Uh, yeah, that's true. Because
0: I tried to buy some stuff from you. Well, you can just call me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but uh, we don't sell online. Um, we will. But, you know, for me, it was important to have the, the the physical space and, you know, for that to mean something. And, you know, going back to what you said, yes, my store is not a typical layout. I mean, it's got a cash register. It's got fitting rooms. So, you know, it's got those things that you need to, like, you know, conduct business. Yeah. But, you know, for me, it was very important, like, if you think about the things, the brands that we carry and the things that we have in the store, like, there is this sort of, like, inter- dependence on the ideas of craftsmanship, but also innovation, also rarity, you know, which are all very important things, I think, you know, when you talk about right. creating desire and, and, you know, making people feel like they, they, they want something. Um, and, you know, for me, like, we were, in a, we we're in an industrial space. But I wanted to make sure that there was something that was living in there. And so, you know, the walls are square. You know, they're not 90 degrees, but it's a rhombus. It's not a square. <laughs> um, but, you know, so my backstock area and my shoe display area and, you know, are made of organic shapes. You know, they're wavy. Yeah. And then, you know, I've got this big plant wall that houses my fitting room. So to have that industrial and that organic in the same space was important to me because that really conveys, you know, kind of the things that we're selling in the store. And, you know, going back to the idea, yes, there are things in my store that are very expensive, you know, but like they're expensive. Like, you know, we sell Missoni sweaters. Yeah. Missoni sweaters are expensive. Yes. There is only one factory in the world that can make those patterns out of knit. Yeah. And they are owned and designed by the Massoni family. There you go. So that is at a premium. Yeah. You can't get that shit anyplace else. Yeah. So you either pay for it because you like it or you don't. And that's fine too. But, you know, like that's part of the reason why those things are so expensive because those machines are rare. Yeah. So, you know, there's that's, you know, that's that. And, you know, Salvatore Piccolo suit is expensive. But, you know, guess what? For what it is. That's just not that expensive.
0: <laughs> that's true. You know? I mean, and, I've worked for suiting companies. Yeah, I, I agree.
1: You know, and like, um, you know, we've got the most expensive tailored jackets in our store made by Armano, um, who owns Arrow 55 in Milan. And, you know, he makes his jackets by hand out of dead stock materials. He's got a 400-year archive. When we make three of
0: them, that's it. Yeah. For what they are, they are not expensive. <laughs> They're not. So, no, I agree. Well, so with this sort of philosophy and stuff that you have, I mean, what are sort of the next steps? I mean, you did mention e commerce, but like, because I think that there's one thing that's interesting, and you know, I'm not, this is no pressure or anything at all, but there are people whom, you know, you're, I would say, you're a very large menswear personality in, in, the, in the menswear world. And there are a lot of people who want to stay connected to you and obviously from ways outside of Instagram, but not only support you and what you're doing but also continue to learn about what you're doing. So, I mean, is e-commerce a future? Is there pop-up stores? Is there, I mean, I, I have no idea. We haven't talked about this before. So, I mean, whatever.
1: Um, I, you know, the main thing for me is to, now that we have established sort of our house voice, you know, to, yeah. to, to use a publishing term, Now that we've established our house voice, people know who we are. We've been very lucky in terms of, you know, the the attention that we've received from the media and from some of my old colleagues and friends in in the publishing world. Um, You know, I think that it is now pretty well established, at least within the circles of, you know, menswear people that, you know, who magazine is, who's behind it, what it's about. Sure. Um, And that has happened relatively quickly. I mean, we've only been open for a year. And, you know, we, we, we've been able to, uh, you know, um, we've gotten some very, very nice attention, very favorable attention. And I'm very appreciative of that. Um, so now that we've done that, now that people know the voice, you know, know kind of like what we stand for. Uh, now's the time to do e-commerce. Yeah. And so that's the next thing for us. And so, you know, that will happen this year. Um, nice. I would put a hard date on it, but like
0: I no. know better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know no, better.
1: That's fine. Just one wrong zero in that whole thing, and it's a, gonna be another two months, you know. So well, uh,
0: but the good news is, I mean, at least so I bought some stuff from you. I bought some EG cargos. And yes, yeah, so I
1: remember the email.
0: Yeah. And your service was great. I mean, the thing is it wasn't yeah, there's not an e commerce store, but it wasn't like that you refused to sell the people outside. No, I mean no, no, you no. super cool, great packaging you know, nice note. I mean, it was the stuff that you really want. And like, I felt like I had good personal attention from that without, you know, Apple paying my way through a website. Like it it was great.
1: Well, that is very, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. And you know, my, my people who work with me at the store, um, certainly pay close attention to that. And, you know, I don't beat them over the head, but I try to lead by example in that, you know, I'm in the store as much as I can be, you know, like when I'm not traveling, um, you know, I'm working on some other projects too, but, uh, you know, they, they, they do, a, they do a fantastic job and, you know, that will carry through to the website. Now, you know, we want to make it easier for people to be able to interact with us in other places. Um, but you know, it is still about what you said, you know, we've worked hard on our packaging, you know, I'm really proud of our logos and our shopping bags and our graphics p- packages and and all of that. And you know, we want, we want that experience to carry through when we do do the web. And that was another reason we didn't want to rush into it, you know?
0: Yeah. I, there's nothing wrong with trying to take your time to do it right.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, uh, having done it, you know, at a pretty high, at a pretty large scale, you know, I, I know how difficult it can be. So, you know, I wanted to make sure that we got the first step up and running and, you know, my partners obviously agreed with me on this. And, and, you know, now the next phase is, We've been open for a year. People know who we are. How do we expand the scope of the business now, you know? How yeah. do we get online? How do we sort of like say, okay, these are the core brands that we started with. These are the core people that we work with, but who else makes sense within this framework? Right. You know, who else can we bring on board? And we've and you know, we've brought on some bigger name designers for this season um such as know, uh the marquee one for me is Dries Van Noten respect um, that's is that's sick my idol <laughs> yeah I mean not my uh, idol is probably the wrong word but he's definitely my favorite designer and so you know when we were talking about this store I was just like I don't really want that much runway right like, quote-unquote runway fashion for the store but you know if we're gonna have anybody I want it to be Massoni and Dries and so we saw those both and you know we brought on Christoph Lemaire the season two. And, um, you know, that, that, those all felt like brands that made sense within the purview of, you know, kind of what we're trying to do because, you know, Dries innovates yeah. consistently. Um, you know, Missoni has wonderful collections, but there's also this just craftsmanship level to it, you
0: know? And, um, yeah, they're not polarizing designers either. I mean, you can have very different styles. And different outlooks on your style and find stuff from Drees and find stuff from Missoni. At yeah, least I mean, for me.
1: Well, look, but you, you're a chameleon, man. You wear, like, all types of different stuff. You know, you can be in, like, a little, little pucker-shouldered Neapolitan jacket one this day and some drop crotches the next, you know? Like, yeah. there aren't that many men who are comfortable doing that, you know? Most men, and I applaud you for it. And, you know, Thank most you. men, um, you know, find their lane and they stick to it, which is also very you know important i you know people say this about me a lot you know they say like josh you always change up what you're wearing and i'm like i don't really i mean the shit's new but it's like or really old or <laughs> i've had it for 20 years but you know most of it kind of like fits into kind of a theme right and yeah. uh you know some of my good friends who also work in this business like Eugene Tong or, um, you know, Nick Sullivan, as we discussed, you know, they're pretty consistent about what they wear. And I think that when men find their groove, they stick to it. And that's where the loyalty comes in. And I think that if they believe in magazine and think it's their groove, then they're going to stick to it. But like, you know, there's other people like you
0: who, and Nick Wooster, who like try all types of different shit. Yeah, I think it, it's, well, that, that's a blessing and a curse. Because like, I, you know, I, I, who was I saying this to when I was talking to MB, 'Cause I was like, I still don't really know what my style is. Like I mean I do on one hand of like that I like this and I want to look like this, but I'll just try anything. So much that, you know, as I've been kind of filtering and selling off a lot of my wardrobe, I'm pulling stuff out and I'm like, what the f-? like I'm like, I don't even know why I own this like X brand or this and that's cool.
1: But Joe, I mean that right there is your thing and that is I'm experimenting. Well, look, I mean you know people people say, you know, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, you know like <laughs> So you know, trying different things is is uh is the name of the game, and you know like if you're not having fun, like if you work in this business, yeah, and like you're miserable about it. Go be a fucking banker or something. You know, you're not going to get like stupid wealthy doing this. That's true. But if you're passionate about it and you love it and you love what you do and you think that there's a reason behind it, as I've said that I do, it's fun. Yeah. And if you're not having fun with what you
0: wear, what are you doing? I agree. You I totally agree. Shit is just like trying to hide all the other weird imperfections in my body, and I'm like, yeah, but I got this, and I got this. Flex. <laughs> yeah, yeah I got this patent leather joint is so tight. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's I think that's a pretty good place to stop it at. I okay. mean, this has been this has been awesome. I very much appreciate you coming on, sharing a bit about you know your passions, how you got into, it. and appreciate the uh, the candor and the vulnerability here. This is good shit.
1: Yeah, man. I mean, you know, nobody's ever accused me of not being honest. That's, that's for sure. Yeah.
0: So you're a great guy. Thank you so much for doing this. Is there, uh, is there any other stuff you want to add or mention before we wrap up? I'm good if you are, man. All right. All right. I think we're out. Okay. All right. See ya. You. You've been listening to Blammo. If you like what you heard, leave a review on iTunes. It helps let others know and discover the pod. Subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last but not least, you can find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blammo Podcast, or send me an email at jeremy at blamopod.com. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.